0: We're gonna do our uh, memory verse here in just a minute. Um, I I have been told that we've given out all 400 of the devotionals we've printed, Um, but you can, if you didn't get a printed copy, you can get this on the church website, Um, and it's great. I've been doing it as my own personal devotions during the week, and um, I found it very, very helpful, especially this last week. So um, if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 25 verses 24 to 28 while I hit these last announcements. Um, One of the things that we're looking for is some more volunteers. If you're physically able to um, take on the risk and time of volunteering, the two main areas we need is in kidsmen and in connections, which is like helping people connect when they get here. And I think it also includes doing some cleaning after the services. That's always been the most difficult thing over the last several weeks. And then um, secondly, if you do not have kids, um, because this service is limited in its slots, and second service actually doesn't have a ton of people in it right now, if you don't have kids, or you're an empty nest, or your kids aren't with you, um, if, you if you don't have kids ministry age kids, if you can move over to second service to create more room in the service for families that have kids, that would be really cool. That would help them. That's just a way you could serve the church by just adjusting your time a little bit. But you don't have to sleep in. You can do homework, and then come to church, and then go do homework again if you're a college student. It's fine. Okay. Great. Also at the end of the service, we do something called Ask Me Anything. If you are on highpointchurch.org slash live, or if you bring it up on your phone, you can ask a question. It can be related sermon or not, um, but antagonistic questions and questions that appear to be from non-Christians get priority for the in-service time, and then whatever we don't answer we do in a podcast for the engagement and Equip podcast that we'll publish during the week. So um, yeah. All right, let's read this passage. Oh wait. Let's do—wait, let's do the memory verse first, okay? So you got—if you have a memory verse card, great. If not, you can open Bible to second Peter 1, 3 to 7, or if you memorized it, you can just say it. It's also on the screen if you're a cheater. Ready? Here we go. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness— through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Great. Whether you read it or you said it, it sounded really good. Okay. I can do it like, perfect every time, except for like when I'm up here. I always wonder, like, is that the right word? It's no fun. Okay. Um, so uh, there's this comedian named Joe Rogan, and it, he tells this joke about growing up in Boston, how Boston like makes real men, and how in the middle of a snowstorm he was watching this car that was totally out of control, spinning through an intersection like full 360s, and the guy was like trying to steer out of it. And while that was happening, he took a sip of his coffee. (laughs) And he was like, that's a real man. That's the kind of man Boston made. He's like, that's the kind of man I want to be, right? Me too. (laughs) Me too. That's awesome. (laughs) I want to be that guy. What I have found though after 25 years of pastoring is that that is more of an image than a reality. That when our lives are in a tailspin, or times get really hard or difficult, um, the battle over the turmoil inside of us is our greatest battle and our biggest difficulty. And that as much as we want to be somebody who's calm, cool, and collected, and in control, taking a sip of coffee at the proper time, and all that, um, we, we need to recognize that, like, we have to— we're actually going to fight a battle in our hearts. We're not going to be, like, sweatless and, like— just easygoing every moment. Like, life is full of these kinds of difficulties, and that's why we've been, we've been working through this series on the heart. The first sermon being about the primacy of the heart, that that God is interested in your heart. He wants to win your heart. He—faith comes from the heart. Doubt poisons the heart. Like this, the heart is at at the center of all your heart. It's the confluence of all the faculties of your being. It's the most indicative thing of who you really are, and it's the thing with which we are to love God with all of, right? All of your heart and all of your soul. It's, it's also what we're meant to utilize and to put our trust in in order for our heart to be formed in that way is the gospel. So it's the primacy of the heart on the foundation of the gospel, right? That what Christ has done in his death and resurrection through his incarnation and before his second coming is to give us the truths that we need and to be with us in a powerful way by his Spirit so that we can actually experience what God has promised. So our hearts don't have to be in profound and constant turmoil, that we can experience the peace of God, and we can be transformed by the power and the message of God. So, primacy of the heart, on the foundation of the gospel, giving ourselves consistently to, disipl- to disciplines of devotion, even when we can't pick emotion. Right? That's what we talked about last week, is that you can choose to give your heart to devotion, even when it's hard to pick your emotion until devotion in relationship to your conscience and your mind and all the different parts of you begin to reshape your emotions so they naturally flow in your heart more in line with the gospel and its truth. Does that make sense? Now, this week we're going to focus on the question of like, but what do you do? When your life is in a tailspin, when things are going wrong, when things aren't the way you wish they would be, when, you're ha- when more turmoil is pushing its way in and you have to do something, like what do you do? What makes up the moments of your life? What are you going to—how to, are you going to act, right? Because life doesn't stop, and your duties don't cease and go away, and your responsibilities remain, when things are going crazy. You still have to like, you have to, to, right? So before we do the answer, there's there's three normal ways people talk about the temptation of what to do wrong when that happens. When you feel pressured, when you feel anxious, when things are kind of pressing on you, when you feel like your car is spinning around, and you like have both hands, white knuckle on the wheel, and you're not taking any sip of anything, right? The natural thing that we do is we engage in paralysis, destructiveness, and hubris. If you talk to a psychologist um, and they were treating you, especially if they were the kind that was only focused on how people just naturally act, they'd say you—people engage in freezing, flight, and fight, right? But although that's our natural instinctual reaction, there's more to it than that. We're more than just instincts, and all of our instincts function through all the rest of us right? And what it looks like from a spiritual category is the first is paralysis. Like, we freeze, but we freeze because none of our other faculties, none of the rest of our character, can direct us because our, our freezing instinctual voice is so loud, it overwhelms everything else, and we don't have the other resources in our character to deal with the freezing. And so what we're experiencing is not just the instinct to freeze, but the actual human functioning of paralysis. And no matter how much we think, data analysis— or some other thing, or some kind of technique can help us with the paralysis, it actually can't. Right? Without the development of the capacity to be an individual person, to make a specific choice, to having convictions that support it, and having the courage to do something, paralysis isn't something that just takes hold for a moment as a reaction, but it can easily become a lifestyle. Right? The second is destructiveness, which is not only do you want to fly or run from, whatever the problem is, we tend to fly backwards to something that's short-sighted and to something that's destructive. Often th- oftentimes, it's the destructive thing we did before, right? And then also, when we—if we do muster up the courage to fight, so a lot of times, reactively, we're, we're going to fight the wrong thing. So like, you're having a terrible time. You end up fighting with your wife, or your husband, or your roommate, or somebody you care about, her, or you, you end up fighting around something that matters rather than the thing that's really bothering you, that's really difficult, that you feel like you can't win, so you don't really want to fight that thing, so you fight somebody or something else, right? And that's, although that's a reaction, spiritually it's also hubris or pride. It's the willingness to damage somebody else or something else so that you can feel better. Right? And although it's helpful to see these in psychological and therapeutic categories, as Christians we need to see them as more than that, not less than that that they're also moral and spiritual categories, and we have more resources than just our neurology to deal with them. We have the human spirit, the soul, the heart. Does that make sense? Now, um, God gives us an alternative to this, and in Scripture the the, the category is a faithful steward. A steward is somebody who owns nothing but is in charge of everything within their scope or domain, right? So God says in Genesis 1 that he he may—let's create human beings so that they can have dominion over creation, right? Every human being has a scope of their dominion. For some people, it's just really your own life and what you're doing in your own life right now, but it's still affecting all kinds of other people. You have a—everybody has a dominion. Some pe- people like to call it your circle of influence, right? Which is fine. It's, it's, it's your influence, it's your dominion, whatever you want, right? And in that dominion, you don't really own anything, not even your own life. Now, legally speaking, you own your shirt and everything. That's all true politically speaking. But in terms of relationship to our Creator, God created everything, and by right of order of creation, He owns everything. We are His vice regents. We don't own it, but He's given us dominion over it. So you don't own anything in your life in relationship to God, and He has put you in charge of everything in your life, and you are supposed to take authority in taking charge of it. That's what a steward is. So in the Bible, there's all these stories of stewards, usually servants under a master, who've been given a scope of dominion, and they're supposed to do it well. And in some of the stories, they do it well. In most of the stories, they do it badly. Right? And when you look at the most fundamental thing that a steward needs to do, especially in relationship to difficult times or when they're struggling with any kind of internal turmoil, the most important thing for that steward to do is to do the next good thing. Okay, that's the most important thing, that they do the next good thing. Now, um, I'm going to break that down into next—actually, to do, next, and good. And then we're going to talk about like four things that are good to do that you can get involved in and and work on. And then I'm going to leave it to you in your personal devotions and in your small groups to kind of discuss the exact specifics of that because you are all very smart and creative people and using your mind is part of taking dominion in your life and I'm not going to steal your destiny, okay? Now, um, so let me read this passage that you have in front of you. Matthew 25, verses 24 to 28. This is the end of the parable of the talents. Then the man who had received one talent, that's like 80 pounds of money, came and he said, Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. You knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10. Now, um, so the first thing to think about in relationship to— All right, hold on. Let's go. I need to go back. Can you go back to that point one? The, The first thing is that if you're going to be a faithful steward, is you have to do something rather than nothing. I know that may sound elementary, but it's not. Not because it's not hard to—not because it's hard to understand, but because we so often don't pay any attention to it. Like, if you're going to be a faithful steward, you have to execute your stewardship. You have to do something. It doesn't matter how bad things get. There is a—there is something to do, right? Now, sometimes the thing to do is rest and cease. That's true. When the right thing to do is rest, then the right thing to do is rest. But rest and paralysis are not the same thing, right? When the, when the effect of paralysis comes over you, when, you when, when that reaction comes up, because you just don't know what to do, and you, what you want to do is you want to say— I mean, think of it, a lot of people in this church are like, you're college educated, and you know data, and you think—and you respect analysis. But here's the thing that's really important to recognize. Most of the most important decisions of your life and in the institutions of in which you're a part, including institutions like the federal government or world organizations, The data doesn't get there in time for the decision. The data gets there in time to second guess it ten years later. Science is slower than happening. And so in most decisions of your life, you're just going to have to make a call based on the information you've got, and you will not know you're going to succeed based on that information. Even with all the advances that we have, even if you're maximally educated, and you listen to all the right people, at the end of the day, it is going to take differentiation—you have to be your own person to know who you are—and courage. And then you're going to choose, and you cannot eliminate risk entirely. And you might therefore then fail without reference to yourself and your effort or your wisdom. That's the way the world is. And if you wait for the data, in many cases you will miss the moment of decision and you'll fail anyway. And there usually is no technique that makes it go at least not a technique that doesn't involve courage and decisiveness. And so one of the things that we have to recognize is that we want to use everything that we can use to make good decisions. That's part of wisdom. Whatever science is available, whatever knowledge is available, whatever experiences are available, whatever wisdom can come to us from other people. But nothing that amounts to functional paralysis. You must act. Right? In this parable in the— the end of Matthew 25, there's the three servants and and the master, who is God in the parable, gives one ten talents. That's 80 pounds of money. All right? Probably silver, so that's like 6,000 talent. It's a, it's a pile of money, right? Literally, because it's pounds of money. And then the second one he gives five too, and the last one he gives one. And the other two guys double the money, and the last guy buries it in the ground and doesn't even put it in the bank. And he the reason he gets judged is I want—and it's really important to recognize here that this is the least empowered person with the best argument of victimization. Okay? i am gonna get to the limits of this in a second, but ultimately God does not accept an argument from your weakness or your victimization as a real—as a excuse for long-term paralysis. Now, some people have experienced trauma, like real serious trauma will experience the reaction of paralysis when things happen. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about choosing to accept paralysis over the long term, for that to become to define you. Does that make sense? And that can happen to you if you're traumatized or not. Sometimes it's just easier. And so the master calls him, and this is a disempowered—he argues that he's a victim, and what the master says to him is that he's wicked, and lazy. That's the divine analysis of his life, that he's wicked and that he's lazy. He's wicked because he believes his own delusion about his victimhood, and that he used that delusion to not do what he must do as a steward, which is to do something. And so he condemns him with his own words. He says, listen, the, the minimal—most minimal possible thing of doing something would have been just take the money to the bank. It takes five minutes. Well, technically it's 80 pounds, so it may have taken a wheelbarrow, but you take the money to the bank, and you put it on deposit. It's not a good investment in terms of outcome. It's a pretty safe investment, but it's something. You did something. You did the minimal possible thing. One of the things to recognize in the scriptures is that God is actually fairly easily pleased. We pretend he's not. We're like, well, he wants perfection, and he wants us to be like just like him, and if any like sin, we're gonna go to hell, and that's why we need Jesus. To no. No. Romans 3 says that our mouths are open graves. <laughs> and that our, our hearts dwell on sin all day long. And the reason why we stand condemned without Christ is not because we like barely missed perfection. That's why I encourage people to never say, if you're a Christian, to say, I'm not perfect. If you say that sentence, you should repent to whoever you're talking to, because you're minimizing whatever it is you're talking about. You should stop right there and say, shoot, I just said I'm not perfect. That means I'm wrong. Let's stop this discussion. We'll come back in 10 minutes when I figure out what I'm, why, what I'm minimizing, right? like. Anytime a human being does anything in the right direction, God is pleased in the Bible. He's pleased. He's happy. If this guy would have put the money with the bankers and gotten 0.32 of 1% of interest, the the master would have been like, all right, well, I'm probably not going to give you more money, (laughs) but I'm not going to throw you out. You have to do something. There's no position, there's no argument that you can make in your own mind that it exempts you from exerting faith in the minimal possible way so as to do something when things are in turmoil, or when things are good. Now, now that I've said that, it's also important for me to say this. The God that demands that minimum is also enormously compassionate to those who are broken by their stewardship, who are exhausted, who feel like failures, right? In um, 1 Kings 19, Elijah, right before this, he has his great triumph. For he's on Mount Carmel and He calls down fire from heaven, from God, to burn up the sacrifice. He kills all the idolatrous prophets of Baal that were leading all Israel astray. And this is supposed to be the moment where all Israel turns back to God, the pinnacle of his career, the great success of his spiritual ministry. And at that moment what happens is the evil king and queen say, you're going to be dead by nightfall. And so, and Israel doesn't rise up to protect him. They all kind of they're all like squishy centrists or whatever, and they all like just disappear. There's no courage. And so he's left all by himself, even after God has literally done an incredible miracle. And so he, he runs into the desert, he under this tree, and he's like, look, I'm just ready to die. He is burned out, and he is despondent, and his heart is filled with gloom. And he, at the moment where he thought he had success, he was a total failure, right? And he's ready for his life to be over, okay? And at that moment, God lets him sleep for a couple days. Like, God cares for him. Like, he sleeps for a whole day, and then an angel shows up, not to bring some, like, really interesting divine message, but to bring him bread and drink, right? And so he eats, and then he drinks, and then the angel goes, now go back to sleep. And he sleeps for another whole day. And then the angel comes back. He's like, I brought you some more food, right? And then, and then he's gone. And then God does a number of miraculous things of showing his power, right? But he doesn't speak to him in any of those things. God isn't in the whirlwind or the fire or any of those things. But then when God speaks in a still, small voice, he tells Elijah, because Elijah had started to slip into this victim mentality, he started to say, I'm the only person left in Israel who cares about you. I'm the only person who's even trying. I'm the only—I'm the only person. I'm the only person. I'm the only person. And God's like, Elijah, I fed you. I've let you rest. I love you. I've shown you my power. I've done incredible things for you. I'm gonna do more incredible things for you. But listen, you're not the only one who cares. You're not the only one in the game. You're not the only one working for the good. You're not the only one who worships me. I have reserved for myself 7,000 people who have never bowed their knee to Baal, and I care about them, and I'm sending you back. Right? So you see, Elijah's stewardship didn't go away. He still had to do something. And when God let him rest, he had to do something again. God is never going to take away your stewardship. There's always going to be something for you to do. Faith will always exert itself into something. But don't take from that that God is some kind of slave driver. That is our own concoction. He is loving and he's caring and he gives rest and he, he provides what we need and we, he provides that through each other. He does enormous and incredible things for us, right? But he will never sin against you by allowing you to be a wicked, lazy servant. He'll never do that. He's never gonna, he's never gonna do that to you or allow that from you or accept it from you. No, no creature as consequential as a divine image bearer can be wicked and lazy in what they've been called to do. All right, we gotta keep moving here. So the next thing is you're gonna do what's next. So the normal thing here is that like you want to run. And most of the time we want to run to something destructive. Things are in turmoil. Let's just watch 47 episodes of that new show on Netflix, right? Like we just want to like step out of the thing. We want to—we're not really resting, we're avoiding. And it's important to recognize that you could categorize this as, we either need to face the next good thing or we're going to fly to the last destructive thing, right? Because we normally move from paralysis to the desire to escape. And when you feel that push for the desire to escape, you need to ask yourself, what's next? What's the next thing? Right? There's a couple reasons why people tend to give up at this point. I want you to understand that in the Bible, every steward that fails, fails because he quits. You understand? He either quits because he's paralyzed, he won't do anything. He either quits because he runs off to sin because he won't stand in and do the next thing, right? Or he quits because he fights the wrong fight. But they always quit, right? They do the opposite of faith. Partly, it's for time, right? Like, people are like, how long is this going to go on for? In Luke 12, there's this servant who's put in charge of a household. and the master's way, it says, a long time. And for a while, he does what he's supposed to do. And then after a while, he's like, my master's like never coming back. When is he coming back? So he starts beating up on the servants instead of caring for them, and he starts eating and drinking their food and getting drunk instead of actually giving them their bread and wine, right? And he says, listen, what you need to understand about time is the master's gonna come back suddenly, and at a time you are not expected. That's kind of true about supervision. I mean, that's what I try to do with like people. I'm trying to figure out what they're doing, is I try to show up suddenly and unexpected, you know, and just—and see what they're doing, because I want to know what they're doing when they don't think I'm going to be around because the absence of the master in Christian faith is always partly a test and a trial to our character. Testing where we're at and trying us to bring us on. Right? And so in our mentality, we can't let time or—the second thing is sight. Sorry, let me cover this really quickly. One of the things you're going to find when you're in turmoil is this. You can't see how to get from where you are to success. You just can't see it. You don't know how to get from here to there, right? It's a huge theme in Lord of the Rings. It's a theme in um, Numbers 13 to 14. So there's this place where the Israelites come out of Egypt. They come through Sinai. They're at, the, they're at the border of the promised land. They send in spies to see how great the promised land is. The spies see how great the promised land is. They also see that there's lots of very strong warriors living in big fortified cities, which is, does not bode well for the Israelites to go in and capture everything. And they can't see. Like when they hear that story, they can't—they look around, Right? They don't have chariots. They don't have siege works. They hardly have any weapons. They're supposed to go into this land with full fortified cities, and they don't see how you get from where they are to the success that God is calling them to. They don't see it. They just, they know what God told them to do. But because they can't see how to get from A to Z, they're not going to do A to B. You see what I'm saying? Here's the problem. In your life, in many situations, that's going to happen. You're going to have a kid who's like going off the deep end and not— Doing what you're, you have parented them to do, and you, have, and you don't see a way for them to come back, right? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if you can't figure out how to get from A to Z. You do B, right? You, you may be in a, in a marriage that just like, you're like, oh, this is, this is never going to work. I don't see any way to get from where we are to where we need to be. There's no way. Doesn't matter if you can't see from A to Z. Your responsibility is to do B. What is B? That's it. I don't know how I'm going to succeed a career. I don't think I'm going to make it through college. I don't know how I'm going to stay in this job or find another one. I don't know how I'm going to get through this health crisis. I don't know how I'm going to get through this election. I don't know how I'm going to get through this football season. I don't care what it is. It can be big, small, trivial, important. I don't know how to get from A to Z. I can't see how to get there. It doesn't matter. What matters is, who are you? That's what matters. Who are you? Are you the kind of creature that because you're being remade by Christ has accepted the identity of being a faithful steward? That Jesus was a faithful steward in all God's house, greater than Moses as the perfect steward of all God's house, and you have received an identity from him that you are a faithful steward over all of whatever your dominion is, and you will be from now till the end, no matter what, a faithful steward in your dominion. Who are you and what are you? That's all that matters. Your identity. There is no one in Scripture who is faithful who fails that God condemns. No one. There are many people who are successful in Scripture, who are unfaithful in how they accomplish it, that God condemns. Saul, right? Samuel doesn't come in time to offer the sacrifice. He's got to go to war. He makes a sacrifice. He goes off to war. He wins. He loses the kingdom. God cares more about the means, how we do things, who we are when we do it, whether we do it faithfully and rightly and justly, than the ends. (coughs) It's better to do all we can in wisdom and faithfulness and lose than to say, I'm going to win at any cost. It doesn't matter if I'm faithful to God's way or his character. I will betray God the morality and identity of the master I'm supposed to steward of, so I can get what I want or what he says he wants, even though I'm doing it in a way he totally forbids. And listen, listen to me. This is very big in our culture right now, because almost everybody around you of every persuasion is starting to believe that the ends justify the means. Almost everyone. And I see this. Listen, I hate Facebook. If I was the emperor of all things and wanted to use that authority, I would, I'd burn every social media to the ground, okay? But listen, I get on there every once in a while just to see what you're doing, okay? And in most cases, I am not impressed. I'm not impressed the subtle to overt bullying, the, if you don't agree with me, you're out, the, I can't believe you could possibly think that, the, like, all of that nonsense, whether it's, whether it's Trump-Biden, whether it's race, whether it's COVID mask-wearing, I don't care what it is. Like, we are to be faithful stewards, full stop. The people who wear masks tomorrow? Encourage them to wear masks. Give them links to good scientific—like, advocate, do, act, speak. If you're gonna, if you're gonna whine about how, how our nations, maybe how our leaders are behaving, listen, culture goes up from the bottom as much as it comes down from the top. Where do you think the newscasters come from? Where do we get our political candidates? And whose behavior makes it so that good men and women won't run? It's us. We accept that news coverage. We accept those candidates. We accept that behavior. We accept it. We accept it from our friends, and our Facebook friends, and our children, and our parents, and everyone. We do that. Remember, in the Bible, when somebody did an offense that required something to be done, stoning usually, every single individual member of the community had to throw a stone. Because God put the weight of the moral nature of the community on everyone. Right? And if we would all be stewards of our domains, things would be very different than they are. And Jesus' name would be more revered than it is. Right? Even if we fight the long defeat, it doesn't matter if we look like Jesus and Moses and the other great stewards of the faith in doing so. It is a privilege and an honor Who is most honored in heaven? If you read the book of Revelation, there's one group honored over everybody else. Everybody who is faithful and godly are beneath these people. The absolute top of the heap that God reverences perfectly, and they're closest to his throne, and there's a special incense for them. They're the martyrs. They're the people who speak truthfully and get killed for it. Christianity is a faith that glorifies martyrdom. Failure. Not martyrdom like we're killing everybody. I get killed so we call me a martyr. No. A martyr is somebody who speaks the truth prophetically, says what's true, and then doesn't take up arms against the person who kills them. That is our faith. Our Savior is that. And so when we do something, we do the next thing, and we do a good thing, it's all bound up in the fundamental nature of the stewards that have gone before us, especially the stewards of the apostles, and especially the steward who is Christ whether you can see from here to there, doesn't matter. You do something, you do the next thing, and you do something that's good, right? So, in order to—when confusion starts to come in because of the situation that we find ourselves in, um, you've got to get clear in your mind what you're doing, right? If you're like, what should I do? Well, first stop and decide what you're doing as a person. Like, what's your goal? Like, who, who are you? What are you for? Then we'll figure out what you should do, right? And the answer is, that nothing matters to the steward who belongs to Christ than the judgment of his master. That's fundamental to stewardship. All that matters is whether the master thinks you're doing a good job. Doesn't even matter if you think you're doing a good job. Listen, if you're, if you are a Christian who sees God as as big as God is, and you see the beauty of his righteousness, how, like how morally good and just he is, and then you look with candor at your own life, you're going to basically think you're a terrible steward all the time, okay? That's why you have to believe in the grace of God and in the love of God. You gotta believe that, yeah, you're pretty terrible at this, but, you know, it's a complicated stewardship, and, you know, he loves you, and he's generous towards you. If you just do something, he's he's pretty happy. He's that kind of master. But all that matters is his view of you. That's all that matters, right? The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, where there's all these people, like, judging each other and judging him. He's like, listen, this is how you should regard us—as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, right? He says, moreover, it's required that a steward of a steward, that they be found trustworthy, right? But with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or anyone, any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear. That doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, at the end of the day, the apostle says, I'm not a celebrity in the church of Corinth. I'm not an apostle. Like, I'm none of the, I'm not this guy who heals people, who God uses in these incredible ways. He's like, at the end of the day, When you boil it all down, this is what I am. I am a servant of Christ, and I'm a steward to the truths of the mysteries of the gospel in God. That's what I am. That's all I am. Right? And, And if that's who you are, all that matters is that a steward must prove trustworthy. That's all that matters, is that in my trust that I'm a servant of Christ, and the trust I've been given is the mysteries of God, that in that trust I be found faithful or trustworthy. That's all that matters. And so I don't care who judges me. I don't care if you judge me, or courts judge me, or the public judges me. I don't even judge me. I try to keep my conscience clear so I'm not self-condemned. But even if my conscience tells me I'm doing a good job, that doesn't mean I'm innocent. Like I'm doing a fantastic job. The only person whose judgment counts is God's judgment. Now listen, that is—I cannot tell you how much peace can flow into your life if you'd get a hold of that. It is unbelievable. Right? Because it's not only all the ways other people are going to judge you, and other people's expectations of you, and other people's derision of you, or or bullying of you, but it's also like your own heart's doubts. Like all the ways you condemn yourself for good reason. Like positive thinking isn't going to get you out of that. A lot of the reasons you condemn yourself for accurate. You don't need positive thinking to, like, explain away your failures. You need to know that the God who will ultimately evaluate you loves you, and he's generous with you, and in any way that you fail or fall in short, Jesus has died for you and performed perfectly on your behalf, so that all that lays before you is to exert faith to do the next good thing. That's it, man. And to a God who is easily pleased in his Son and through his Son in you, Now, there was some joking when we came up with the title, The Next Good Thing, because some people were like, isn't that kind of like the Frozen 2 song, the next, like the next right thing? And I was like, yeah, but this is better, Um, because, and look, I don't, I don't, like, I hate some of the messages in Disney movies like The Little Mermaid. Like, I, I hate that movie. I just hate it, except for the dog. I think the dog is cute, but like that's it, man. I just hate that movie. It's like the worst possible message of teenagers and like Triton can't sign that. Anyway, the, the point is, is that, like, some of them are great. Frozen Two is great. You gotta do the next right thing. But here's, here's why I say the next good thing. Because right assumes one. It, see, like she, in the movie, she's like in a cave. Look what's she gonna do? Dig, dig down deeper? Like, it's obvious what the next right thing is. You climb out of the cave. Ugh. Right? That's not how life is. In, in, in life, you have lots of possible options. Which one's the right one? Right? You see, I see young people paralyzed by this all the time. Well, which, which person should I date? Or like, what career should I go after? Or which college? Or like, which shirt should I wear? Or like, like and, and people have all these issues. Like, well, well which is it? Which I, or like, with their kids, they're like, well, I could do this with my kid, or I could do that with my kid, or I could do this with my kid. Like, which one's the right one? Which will get me the perfect adult child? Right? And it's paralyzing, and that's why I don't think you should think in those terms. You're not looking for the right thing. The right thing that will get the best outcome is something that exists in the mind of God. It is undisclosed to the human race, and he's probably not going to tell you. Now, sometimes when you pray and ask God for leading, you will sense some kind of impression, or sometimes God will like speak to you. But even for people who have experienced that, they'll still tell you it's like not for most things. Like a couple turning points in their life, people will feel like, you know, God really, I felt like he pushed me this way. But for the most part, God wants you to become a grown-up, He wants you to take dominion over the dominion of your life. He wants you to make adult decisions based on the stewardship he has shown you. He wants you to get to know him in devotion and to know his character, so that it becomes plainly obvious the direction that he wants you to go. And he wants you to choose and act and do. Right? And so, because of that, he's only told you a little tiny bit of his will. That is, his, his revealed will or his disclosed will. He's told you some things about himself, he's shown you some things in his Christ, and he's told you to do some stuff in his commandments. Right? What's contained in Christ and in the scriptures. That is a tiny—that circle should be much smaller on that if I was going to be proportional, right? Everything else is the secret things that God has not told us, right? It says in Deuteronomy, that which God has revealed is for us and our children, and the secret things of God are secret, right? He's working them out. You don't get to know them. Do you understand? And so there's nowhere in scripture where somebody gets penalized, or God isn't with somebody, because they don't do God's secret will, right? God has enough trouble getting us to believe him and obey him in doing his revealed will, right? If God wants somebody to do something that's not part of his revealed will in the Bible, he sends a prophet who explicitly tells them in verbal inspiration, okay? If you were ever part of a Christian movement that says, like, if God gave you an impression in your heart and you didn't do it, you're in disobedience. I don't believe that. Maybe it's true. I don't believe that, and I don't see any biblical evidence for it. That doesn't mean that if God speaks to your heart, and you know that that's him, you shouldn't do it. But you should do it in relationship to conscience and wisdom and other things too, which I'm not going to get into now. But I want you to understand that when you try to figure out what to do next, you're not looking for the right thing. Who knows what the right thing is? You don't. And God's not going to tell you, because the right thing in God's mind is the thing you choose. With all your heart, with all your conscience, with all the wisdom that you can muster, with all the community that you can be part of to deliberate wisdom, that which you're willing to sacrifice for, and that which you like. Like if there's like three people you could date, like, the, you're like, who should I marry? It's like, the one you like. <laughs> right? God wants you to be pleased. He, he likes to give you, it says in First Thessalonians, all things for your enjoyment. Like there, there's most things he just wants you to do what you like. And he doesn't want you to do it because somebody else likes it, or because somebody says it's fashionable. He wants you to do it because you like it. And if you do that, you'll become more yourself, and more a real individual that actually enjoys God's actual creation and is real, are really yourself. So much of what people do in this country, in our society, is stuff other people approve of. It's so ridiculous. Right? Like, I, I mean, it makes me dress better, I guess, but like, but we, so much of what we do, it's like stuff other people like, and other people prove it. Other people told you the the right place to eat, or the right clothes to wear, or the right things to think. Who cares what those people think? They're, they're like, they're human critters. Like, what does it matter? What we're called to is to do something good that is something we know is in the revealed will of God, and to do it with all our hearts. Okay? Very, very quickly. I put this in here so you can go look at it later if you want to walk through some things like it looks like to seek God's will. Um, there's, There's a book called Finding God's Will by Gary Friesen, I think it's called, and he says, listen, don't think of the will of God as like a red line, and like your life is a blue line, and if you can keep the blue line of your life on God's red line of like his predetermined best life for you, that you'll be in God's will. He's like, that's a really dumb way to think about it, okay? It's a very intuitive way to think about it, but it's not right. He says, think about God's will like a pasture, and you're like a sheep, right? You could graze anywhere in the pasture you want, but just stay in the pasture, right? The the boundaries of the pasture are God's revealed will, his commands. Don't do this, do that. You can eat anywhere you want. Follow your giftings and your passions and like the circumstances in your life and what you want to be part of and things that are happening in your life, the experience that you can bring to bear in the things that you do, and do all that stuff in the pasture. But don't freak out about whether or not you're in God's will. If you obey the Lord and what he said and you're following Christ and being remade in his image, you are in the will of God. Just enjoy that. Don't freak out about it. It's like freaking out that like, your wife is going to constantly leave you. It's the best way to make her leave you. You know what I mean? Like just enjoy her and love her back and trust her trust in you. That's all you can do in a relationship of love and trust. Right? Now, okay, four areas where you can do good. Like you're like, well, what kinds of stuff? Okay, here are like four big categories quickly. The first is f- human flourishing. Okay, the creation mandate, which God has never taken away from the human race, is for us to fill the earth— through physical human-creating procreation, and taking dominion over all creation, bringing out its potential, helping it be ordered out of chaos, and bringing out its greatest good, both human and natural. That's what most of us do most of the day. Most of us aren't in the redemption mandate business. We're in the creation mandate business. Your work is good. It's intrinsically good. Right? You're engineering. You're, you're like, made cleaning. Like when you clean something, people get less sick because you do that. That's a good thing. It, It provides human flourishing. If you're in, if you're in investment capital, or if you get rid of people's trash so that it doesn't accumulate in their driveway, you are in the human flourishing business. You're part of the creation mandate. You're doing something good. Go do it. That's why, Christianly speaking, if you can, even if you're disabled, It's better to do some kind of even volunteer work, even if you have to receive benefits from the government, even if that's what you have to do for some reason. Still go do something good. Go read in a school. Go volunteer somewhere. Employ yourself in the flourishing of others, no matter what it is. Does that make sense? Because you don't, you don't have to feel like a bad person because you receive help from others. It's fundamentally part of Christianity if you really need it. Generosity towards those in need but you can do something good. And that's, that's in addition. So you may be receiving help from others and then doing good to someone else. That's perfectly spiritually healthy. Right? We want to provide for ourselves when we can. The second is that be part of the redemption mandate or the redemption commission. That all people would come to Christ and become citizens of the kingdom of God and be saved in Christ and disciple to be baptized and obey Jesus and all things. Like, be part of that. There's a way you can be part of that. What can you do to be part of that in somebody's life in any way? And part of that isn't just telling people about Jesus. It also includes things like discipling people, helping people grow. It's also speaking the truth, like, in public and around people and being like, this is right and this is wrong, actually. It's to be a salt, which is essentially a preservative, that if things are going bad, they go bad less fast. Like, imagine for a second people are right who say America's in decline. Okay? Maybe that's true. And maybe it's gonna decline completely to nothing. Maybe this is gonna be the, like, stinkhole of the earth in 50 to 270 years. Okay, let's say that's true. Our job is still to be salt. We're gonna make it go less bad slower than it would have without us. And that's good work. That's meaningful work. That's, that, that's beneficial to people, right? And, some, and that's going to be through our moral action, which is part of our spiritual identity. Do you understand? The third thing is to build institutions. I know this is the sexiest one. You're going to love this. We're going to talk more about this on the podcast, but listen, human beings are developmental creatures. They are formed in community-based structures that develop them. Now, I understand that most of our institutions are breaking down, and most of them have become platforms on which people perform rather than structures that form people. Like, political parties are no longer organizations that form people for public office. They are stages on which people can stand and wave their arms and perform. But listen, the Marines, nobody stands on the Marines and performs. Right? It takes people and it moves them through an institutional process and creates a completely different kind of human being on the other side. And the two main divinely given institutions that are supposed to do that are the family and the church. Okay? Now there are other divinely affirmed institutions like government, Romans 13, and some others. But the positive central ones that God has given us is the family to make new humans and to form them to be Functional human beings, what God calls in Malachi, godly offspring, and the church to take people from all families, whether their families raised them to know God or not, or be part of his kingdom, and to bring them into the family of God, and to nurture them, and care for them, and help them heal, so they can grow completely into the restored image, and into the image of Christ. Those are the two fundamental institutions. Invest yourself in those institutions. If you don't have a family of your own Leah, invest yourself in your family. Invest yourself in somebody else's family. Like go find some couple that's like having trouble and let them go out on dates and watch their kids or do something like that. Like invest in families. And not like, not like just nuclear families, like like all kinds of families, like people who are trying to create a space for people to grow and nurture. Whether or not it looks like the norm or the way the Bible wants you to do it or not. Like help people with their institution so that it can function the way it needs to function, which is to help human beings be brought up and released. Because, listen, the church is a kind of dysfunctional family, too. Like, if all we care about is families who are like doing it right, what's going to happen when you look at me and this church and it's not perfect? And you're like, well, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. I'm like, yeah, I got all these sinners and we're doing all this stuff, right? Like, you've got to be committed to the institution because it is a— fu- and, so, and we're, we live in a society where people don't believe in them anymore. Well, here's the problem. Human nature fundamentally requires them. So you're not clever, if you're like, well, I'm above institutions. You're not clever. You're foolish. And when we don't care about our institutions, then we demonstrate our foolishness. Now some institutions are like idiotic, and they're like ordered really bad. We should have never created them in the first place. And I'm not saying you have to believe in all institutions, right? But there are some fundamentally human ones that you should, and by investing in those, you're doing the next good thing. And then lastly is the repetitions and rituals of devotion. Like, human beings are repetitive creatures too. Not only do we require institutions, but we require, we require ruts to keep us on track, and we require rituals. And they happen over and over and over again. And if you can't accept the over and over and over again of human life, you will not enjoy human life. You will always be trying to escape it. And so embracing the good of the repetitions of your life, going to work again, Doing your laundry again, taking a shower again, praying again, reading the scriptures again, talking to your friend again. That's what life is made up of, and by embracing it and being a full participant in it, you can do the next good thing. Do you understand? So, a faithful steward is always looking for a way to do the next good thing. In these, sco- in these scopes of places where God is trying to make us flourish. And no matter whether or not we can see success or how long it's going to take, that doesn't matter. What matters is who are we? Do we belong to the one who is the greatest steward, which is Christ? Do we want to be like him? Do we want to please the master? Is the only thing that matters to us is who judges us, which is only God. The God who all he wants us to do is just the next good thing, and he is easily pleased when we do so. Or are we going to let our fear and its paralysis and our desire to fly away to destructiveness or our hubris to fight the wrong fight control us? God, as we turn our hearts to communion and try to organize our hearts and mind around the illumination of the fact that you have been broken and your blood has been spilled for our salvation, help us as we take the bread in the cup. Help us to believe in, to accept, to love the fact that all there is to do in this, in this life is to please you. And if we do so, we will help others. We will be the selves that we're meant to be. And we will bring about flourishing. We'll live out our purpose if we focus on our one purpose as your stewards. Help us to believe in that, help us to revel in it, and help us to enjoy it this morning as we take the cup and the bread in Jesus' name. Amen.